This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Optum, a health services innovation company dedicated to helping people live healthier lives and helping make the health system work better for everyone. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy joined the Washington Post to discuss what we've learned from COVID-19 and how these new lessons will impact the future of healthcare in the U.S. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at the Washington Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And I'm pleased to welcome my first guest this this morning, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who was the 19th Surgeon General uh, under President Obama. Welcome to the program, Dr. Murthy. Thank you so much, Paige. It's great to be with you today. Our topic is health preparedness in the pandemic, and I want to start off by asking you about some of the top stories today. Uh, my colleagues reported earlier this week that uh, the FDA has been preparing sort of a stricter standard for getting a coronavirus vaccine approved for emergency use later th- this year. President Trump was asked about that plan last night and seemed to dismiss it, called it a political play, and suggested that he would not give his approval on that stricter guidance. I want to ask you, do you think uh, stricter standards would be appropriate at this juncture? As you know, we do see a fair number of Americans seem to be a bit skeptical, skeptical of a vaccine. Would you like to see stricter standards? Well, Paige, I was glad to see uh, the story that your paper reported about the guidance being worked on and hopefully soon issued. Because one of the things that the scientific community has been calling for are clear standards for how this vaccine will meet safety and effectiveness. And that has to be clear ahead of time because there's already been too many instances in the last six months of how politics has really overtaken science when it comes to decision making. Uh, from the administration, and in particular from the FDA when it came to the decision they made to issue an EUA, an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine, and later the misstatements that they made uh, about uh, about plasma, convalescent plasma. And so it's all the more important, given the hesitancy we know exists in the population already, with 50% of people or more saying they wouldn't take the vaccine, even if it was available today, it's really important that those standards are clear, that they are put out in advance, and that they're actually observed and honored when a decision time comes for an emergency use authorization. Uh, so to kind of get get a little bit more into what an EUA would, would mean or how you would issue one, I know the idea has been that these companies would be able to observe a relatively small number of people who had been given the vaccine in a placebo, perhaps over just a couple of weeks after receiving the final dose, and then would be able to apply to the FDA for an EUA. And it sounds like under this potential new guidance, companies would be required to observe people for, I believe, a median of two months. So do you think that that time frame needs to be lengthened so that we can be more assured, I suppose, of the efficacy of a vaccine? Well, there were actually several things that, uh, that that were put out in these, or at least that are being drafted in these guidelines and potentially included that I think are important. One is what you mentioned, the two-month time frame, and that's really around safety. Uh, two months after the last dose of the vaccine uh, to be able to assess whether an adverse event has taken place. Now, will that catch every possible adverse event? No, uh, but two months is a, a reasonable time frame to consider. But there are other elements of these guidelines that the FDA has been working on that are important. They had also said, for example, that an external advisory group has to weigh in 
prior to an emergency use authorization being issued. That is critical. This is an important source of accountability. These are external scientists who would who would really consider this vaccine in the context of a public hearing. So the public would be able to to listen and to engage and look at the data. They'd also said that there need to be at least 50 cases in the placebo group. And there also needed to be a plan presented uh, by the manufacturer for how to manufacture the vaccine at scale, how to do it safely, and also how to track adverse events after the EUA was issued. These are all important planks uh, to ensuring that there is more, it's more likely that the vaccine that is issued in the EUA would be safe and, and effective. Um, and, you know, so the truth is, and the question is really at this point, will these guidelines be honored? Will the FDA be allowed to issue them without interference from the leadership and Health and Human Services and from the White House? And that's a question that the entire scientific community and frankly, the public is, I think, waiting to hear the answer to. Well, and based on Trump's comments yesterday, are you concerned that he will try to block this? I believe the guidance is at OMB being considered by OMB right now. And if he does that, what is that going to do to the public's confidence in the safety and efficacy of a COVID vaccine? The comments the president made yesterday were not. I think people are already worried about interference in what scientists are recommending. And to say that the White House could, would potentially overrule uh, this guidance was not, uh, was not a, a move that I think increased people's faith, that this process would be carried through with integrity and with prioritizing science. Look, everybody should have a chance to weigh in and give an opinion on these guidelines. But what's really important is, is what is driving the boat? Is it science or is it politics? It's that simple and it's that important uh, to make that clear. And right now the, the bar uh, needs to be high uh, because of the missteps in the past. So there has to be transparency in how this decision is being made. Uh, the, the public needs to hear from staff scientists at the FDA as well, not just political appointees. We need to have confidence that the people who had the most experience uh, evaluating vaccines and approving them are the ones driving decisions. And what are ways, you, you referenced earlier the polls that show the trust uh, Americans have in a COVID vaccine isn't great at this at this point, and it actually seems to have, have fallen from where we saw, from levels we saw in the spring. What should the message be from the Trump administration right now about a COVID vaccine? And then also, you know, uh, Democratic nominee Joe Biden, who potentially could be in a situation in January where he's the one who is in charge of trying to convince people to take a vaccine? Well, I think, you know, if I was advising the Trump administration, what I would tell them at this point is that you have to let science guide your way on this vaccine. You have to get politics out of decisions about whether they issue the authorization, about timelines, and in your communication as well, you've got to be crystal clear that the people driving this are going to be the scientists at the FDA, that there will also be transparency, that the data that you are using to evaluate a vaccine candidate will be made available to the public so that the scientific community can also weigh in on that. There's a lot of ground to make up here. You know, the Kaiser Family Foundation's recent poll earlier in September showed that 54% of people polled said that they would not take a vaccine if it was available today. That is staggering. And, and if we want to be able to utilize a vaccine to move toward herd immunity, we're going to need the vast majority of the American public to recognize and trust that this is safe and then to take that vaccine. Uh, at this point, we're not 
in a situation where we we can assure, we're assured that that's possible. So we've got trust to rebuild and a lot of ground to make up. Let's talk about the pharmaceutical companies for a minute. And I think we have four uh, vaccines that are in final stage trials at this point. Johnson & Johnson announced uh, that they're entering the stage three this week. And I know a number of the companies, or at least one, I'm not sure if the others, ha if others have uh, said that they're going to release more data than they would ordinarily. Are you satisfied with the level of transparency that we're seeing from these developers? Well, I think we've seen some positive moves recently. I think they're having a few companies release their protocols. I think it was a step in the right direction. Um, I think having the companies also sign a letter together uh, to say that there were certain standards that they wanted uh, to be met uh, in terms of trial completion before uh, an EUA was actually issued or considered, I think was a step in the right direction. I think the real question is going to be what happens uh, when the time for a potential authorization comes. Will that data be made available? Here's one thing I'm concerned about. I'm concerned that in this process over the last six months, we have seen uh, what in the scientific community many of us have called publication by press release. And what I mean by that is typically when you want to get out scientific developments, you have it peer reviewed and it gets published in a journal. And the point is that it's rigorously evaluated before you put it out for public consumption. But in many cases, what's happened with the vaccine trials, especially the early stage trials, was that companies published uh, press releases saying, we have these findings, and even before it was evaluated by uh, a group of peer scientists. And that allowed information to spread in the public before it was thoroughly vetted. We can't afford for that to happen. What I don't want to see is one of these companies issue a press release saying, we've got it, we've done it, we, we, we have a vaccine that works, without the opportunity for proper evaluation by scientists. That would be a mistake, and I hope that they all guard against that. Well, and it does seem like they have an extraordinary amount of pressure, of course, to get a vaccine approved. Um, there, I know, has been some discussion about who would be the first people prioritized to get a vaccine uh, under an EUA, and there's talk, of course, about frontline medical workers, uh, the elderly. Who, in your opinion, should be a top priority for getting a vaccine first? Well, you know, the National Academies of, of Medicine, Science and Engineering have been have done a great job, actually, at uh, putting together uh, a draft of these priority groups and have and they will be submitting it, uh, you know, to the to, to the CDC um, and to the NIH and to others in HHS for consideration. And ultimately, the decision will be made uh, by the government on these priority groups. But but I do think that they're on the right track because what they have done in their tier one is prioritize healthcare workers who are on the front lines who have the greatest risk of exposure uh, to COVID-19. They've also prioritized uh, people who are at higher risk. And this includes the elderly. It includes people who have serious medical conditions. Uh, and we've seen, you know, at this point, we've just crossed a, a really uh, tragic milestone of 200,000 lives that we have lost uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, but we know that we're not at the end. And so protecting the most vulnerable uh, has to be our priority. We've got to get the vaccine first. Yesterday, there was a hearing uh, in, in Congress with the top, top scientists in the administration, Dr. Fauci and, of course, Robert Redfield. And, of course, they were asked again about the timeline for when a vaccine might be broadly available. And they had both pointed to next spring as, uh, as, a, as a point. Do you agree with that timeline based on what you've seen? Is that a realistic time frame? Well, I think 
targeting next spring uh, for widespread access to a vaccine, meaning that you've gotten through your high priority groups, you've vaccinated them, and you're moving on to tier two and tier three groups. Um, that's an optimistic timeline. Uh, I think it's possible, uh, but it's optimistic. We would need to get a vaccine pretty quickly uh, that passed the evaluation process and proved it was both safe and effective. We would need to have one of the most efficient and effective delivery processes for a vaccine uh, that we've ever had in the history of this country. And we're going to have to build that. Uh, and plans need to be put together. I hope they've already been put together by the administration to actually uh, deliver on that. But if all of that takes place and if public trust is restored in this vaccine such that people are willing to take it, then it is possible that by the spring we could see widespread access to the vaccine. Keep in mind one last thing, though. The leading candidates for the vaccine are two-dose vaccines. That means that you don't need to just get someone in the clinic the first time, but either 21 or 28 days later, depending on the vaccine that's ultimately approved, you will need to bring people in for a second shot. You will also need to have very high quality and integrated data systems in place so you can track who has been vaccinated so that if people, if you have pockets that have not been vaccinated, you can target your efforts and your resources there. It's a lot to come together, to pull together uh, at this moment in time, but it's what we need to do to ultimately protect the country uh, from further, uh, further, further death and further illness as a result of COVID-19. Well, and you mentioned that the CDC released a vaccine distribution plan last week. Have you taken, it sounds like you've taken a look at that. What do you think overall? What are strong points, any weak points there? Um, you know, it sounds like they're working through existing systems, but what's your analysis of that? Yeah, so the, the, vac the plan that they put together uh, last time was reassuring on a couple of counts. One is it did hit uh, a number of the critical areas that you'd want to cover when it comes to vaccine distribution, thinking about who your partner should be, thinking about uh, systems and mechanisms for transporting the vaccine, recognizing that one of the vaccine candidates in particular, the Pfizer vaccine, requires cold storage at dry ice temperatures, which is between minus 70 to minus 80, which presents a huge logistical challenge. Um, there was thought given uh, to how we track data as well and make sure that uh, we are cooperating with states and working in close partnership with them. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, they hit a lot of the right notes in terms of uh, acknowledging topics that were critical. The real challenge now, though, is uh, can they actually get it right in terms of execution? Um, we know that, you know, putting plans together is one thing, executing them is another. But the fact that the, this kind of guidance was put out reassures me that Many of the scientists that I know, having worked with them at the CDC, uh, you know, and who have great expertise, knowing that those scientists are there and still there, that they're working, that they have uh, the right ideas, that they can still help guide us through this crisis is, is, to me, reassuring. What we need to now do is let them do their work without interference. Uh, and I think we'll be in a much better place in addressing this virus. I know uh, Joe Biden has released some guidelines for how he would go about distributing a vaccine. Have you taken a look at that? And what do you think would be the biggest differences between his approach and the one the Trump administration seems to be taking? Well, the, the Vice President Biden has been really concerned about vaccine distribution for quite a while now. And the reason is because during his time in the White House with President Obama, uh, there were a number of outbreaks that they had to deal with from H1N1 uh, to Ebola to Zika, but with H1N1 in particular, uh, they had to think through how to rapidly and effectively get a vaccine out to a large portion of the population. So that challenge is familiar to him. 
he appreciates and I think is approaching this task with humility, recognizing that we have in some ways even greater barriers now because of the challenges with public trust. And so as he's thought about a distribution plan, uh, you know, he's certainly, he's prioritizing many of the key elements that would not surprise you. He recognizes the importance of strong data systems to understand who's gotten the vaccine so we can deliver resources. He understands how important it is to figure out storage and transportation of these vaccines. He knows how important partnerships are, not just with state governments, but also with health systems, with uh, large big box pharmacies that are gonna be important sites of distribution, as well as with schools and employers. We're gonna be critical partners here as well. You know, I think the bottom line though is, uh, you know, he understands that you can't just talk a, a good game when it comes to vaccine distribution, but in the execution, you've gotta really put your shoulder to the wheel and build those partnerships, restore trust, and communicate effectively and regularly with the public. You know, I'll lastly say this, Paige, you know, because this is a theme I think that he has touched on before that I firmly believe from my own experiences with Ebola and Zika, which is that in a pandemic response, public trust is one of your most important resources. Uh, if you don't have it, then people will doubt everything you say and your recommendations, even when they're legitimate scientific recommendations. And in this case, the stakes are extraordinarily high. So having a leader and having a leadership team that communicates regularly, transparently, um, and truthfully with the public, that shares information not just when it's convenient, but even when it's hard. So as someone who talks not just about the successes, but about the failures and how we're going to rectify those failures, that is absolutely essential uh, in a pandemic response. And you've seen that from Republican and Democratic governors alike who have in, in select cases done an extraordinary job of leading their states and communicating well in this time of crisis. Well, I know we could talk about vaccines forever and I'd love to pick your brain, but want to ask you a little bit about, you know, as we look forward to the fall and winter as we're still dealing with this virus, let's imagine for a minute that you were still Surgeon General and part of the coronavirus task force. What advice would you be giving to the president as we look ahead to the cold season, especially as we see the flu, cases of the flu starting now, presumably to rise through the next couple of months? Yeah, so I'm worried about the fall for, for a couple of reasons. You mentioned flu, and then and we should be very concerned about flu. Uh, fortunately, many of the precautions we're trying to get people to take to prevent COVID-19 transmission will actually help prevent flu transmission as well. That's a good news. So hand hygiene, distancing, wearing masks, those will all help. Uh, but we really also need people to take the vaccine as well, the flu vaccine. Flu vaccine is not perfect. I think most people know that at this point. But every year in the United States, we save millions of people uh, from infection uh, and from complications, uh, potential complications, because they get the flu vaccine. Uh, and, you know, and this is true over the last many years. And so what's really important here is that people get vaccinated. Um, in Australia, a country that took precautions seriously, uh, like hand hygiene and distancing, and that tripled its vaccination rate for flu, they saw a 99% decline in flu cases this year. Uh, compared to last year. And keep in mind, Australia being the Southern Hemisphere ex experienced flu season ahead of us. So I'm worried about flu. I'm worried about cold weather bringing people indoors. And we know that indoors uh, is a much higher uh, you know, uh, setting for transmission uh, than outdoor settings. So this makes it all the more important uh, that we are being really cautious and wearing our masks, that we are washing our hands, that we are keeping our distance. And, and you know, I know people are getting tired of this. Um, you know, I, in my own family, you know, I've got two small kids, four and two, 
uh, and, and my wife, and we're living with our, you know, with my parents and my sister and or my grandmother and brother-in-law and three cats. It's a it's a crazy chaotic time, and I know many families are are going through this upheaval, and it gets tiring after a while. And people ask the question, how long do we have to do this? Um, but this is the moment I think when we've got to be especially careful because we've seen that in other instances when we let our guard down, when localities and states relaxed restrictions too early, as happened in the beginning of the summer, we saw surges. And so we've got to be vigilant right now, follow these rules, and we've shown that if we do, they can keep us safe. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for such an interesting conversation, Dr. Morthy. Well, thank you so much, Paige. It's great to be with you and my best wishes to you, your family, and to all who are listening. Stay safe and stay well, everyone. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.